everybody, and welcome back to That's Insane, a podcast where I talk about murder, medicine, and maybe more, but most definitely more because there's a lot of weird shit out there. My name is Aurelia and I am your host, and today I have a true crime case for you. Um, The trigger warning for this one, it does involve a child, so if children murders trigger you, then this is definitely not the case for you, but there are also other episodes that you can listen to. I don't know about everybody else. Um, I don't know if people listen to this not in the Midwest, but it is fucking cold and has been colder than a witch's fucking tit for like the last week. And I don't know about you guys, but it does not make me want to leave the house or do absolutely anything. The other night I went here and it was like kind of damp and I went outside to take the dog out. I was probably out for like five minutes, not even. And my hair was frozen. It was frozen. I laughed to myself and um, (laughs) then I got really sad because it's so fucking cold. But It's starting to warm up. I think next week it's supposed to be like 50 degrees, which is just really nice if it wasn't because the world was ending, but I guess I'll enjoy it while I can, you know? Um, I'm trying to think of other things going on currently, and I can't. So I guess let's just get into it then. Um, As always, all of the Show notes, I mean, all of the sources are going to be in the show notes, so if you want to, I don't know, check my sources, then you can find them there. They'll always be there because most of the time I forget to mention them, but it seems like now that I've started doing that, I remember to mention it every time, so whatever. Um, So today we're going to talk about the murder of Polly Class. So um, I mentioned her briefly in my Amber Alert episode, so... Some of it might sound familiar, but I really didn't go into a lot of detail. I just mentioned her dad um, because he helped create or helped support, I guess, the Amber Alert initiative. And it's because of what happened to his daughter, Polly. So um, Polly Class was born January 3rd, 1981 in Fairfax, California. Her parents, Mark and Eve, did divorce when she was very young at the age of two. But her mother remarried and had another daughter, Annie. Polly liked Archie comics, Judy Bloom books, and theater. So just, you know, a regular 80s, 90s kid. She enjoyed being in school plays and dreamt of acting professionally one day. Um, she was also very active in her school band and played the clarinet, which is what helped bond her with two other girls at the school. I don't believe I mentioned their names and I don't plan to mention their names because they were just children when this happened. But their names are mentioned in... Um, news articles and stuff like that, but it's not really pertinent to the story if you ask me. So at the age of 12, she and her mother and younger sister did settle in Petaluma, California. If you listen to My Favorite Murder, this always cracks me up because uh, Karen is from Petaluma and she always talks about being like a small town and that she couldn't get pizza delivered and like everybody knew everybody. And so I'm thinking it's like this super tiny, like, farm town of you know a couple thousand and then in one episode because I re-listen to them as I fall asleep because I have issues she mentions that it's like a town of 30,000 which is the size of the town I'm from and I was just like wait a minute that's not that small uh so it just cracks me up but anyway 
It was just a side note. So on the night of October 1st, 1993, Polly and her two friends were having a slumber party. The girls were in Polly's room playing games when about 10.30 p.m., a man entered Polly's bedroom carrying a knife, stating he wouldn't harm the girls and was just there for the money. So it's like, then why come to my room? Why would the 12-year-old have the money? You know, but I guess good leverage. Um, the girls were, oh wait, I already said that. Initially, the friends thought it was a prank. Um, the man then threatened to slit their throats and then asked whose house it was, which Polly answered it was her house. She offered $50 in cash from a box, but he refused, making the girls lie down on the floor where he then tied their hands, gagged them, put pillowcases over their heads, and told them to count to a thousand as he left with Polly. The two girls then, of course, ran to tell Polly's parents what happened, and they called the police. Her parents, her mom, and her stepdad were home when this happened. I think when I've read it before, it says that they were awake, but then when I was reading these articles, it said they were asleep. So I don't know, but regardless, they were home, like there was a full house. Uh, So then the FBI were immediately called in, and a sketch artist was hired to create the image of the suspect based on the two girls' description. An all-points bulletin with the man's information was broadcast within 30 minutes of the kidnapping, but the broadcast only went out over Sonoma County Sheriff's Channel 1, so it wasn't very widely spread. Literally about an hour or so after the kidnapping, a babysitter on her way home noticed a vehicle that she didn't recognize in the ditch of her employees, um, I'm sorry, of her employer's driveway in rural Santa Rosa, which is about 20 miles north of Petaluma. So it was like a long, um, like, it was just a really long driveway. She then called the property owner, who decided to leave her house with her daughter. Um, and then as the owner left, she did pass the vehicle and the man and called 911 when she got to a service station. Two deputies were sent out, but like I said, they were unaware of the kidnapping or the suspect description as the Sonoma Valley units were on Channel 3 and the APB only went out on Channel 1. The two deputies ran the man's driver's license and plate number, but there were no warrants or anything. Now, the deputies did try to convince the property owner to make a citizen's arrest for trespassing because they didn't have anything to arrest him on. But I think that they were like, something is weird about this guy. Um, I think I read somewhere that the deputy, oh, I literally just said it, (laughs) that the deputies were like, something is wrong, but they legally didn't have anything on him. Um, But the property owner did decline. I think it said that they didn't want to like get involved or anything like that. So the deputies called a tow truck to get the man's car out of the ditch. They searched the car thoroughly before the tow truck came, but they didn't find anything suspicious. And the only possible violation was that there was an open container of beer but since the man wasn't physically driving when they were speaking with him there wasn't really anything that they could do like I said the deputies felt that something was off and they had noted that the man was like sweating even though it was a really cold night he was out of breath he had like leaves and twigs in his hair so they filled out a field interrogation card and let the man go I don't know what a field interrogation card is I didn't look it up I think it's I guess I'll look it up right now field interrogation or a field interview card is a three by five index card that allows that's okay okay well it says that allows the first responder to gather pertinent information without having to think about it what the fuck the information necessary is organized okay this that doesn't sound correct i think it's basically a field interrogation is any situation in which a police officer asks questions pertaining to a crime or a suspected crime of a citizen prior to the time when the citizen is taken by force or consent to the police station. I guess that they just basically got his information is really all it sounded like. 
So this man's name was Richard Allen Davis. So Richard was born June 2nd, 1954 in San Francisco, California. He was the third of five children. Unfortunately, his early years really weren't the best. Both of his parents were alcoholics and his mother once punished him and his brothers for smoking by burning their hands on hot stoves. So not the greatest home life. However, lots of people go through this kind of shit and don't turn out to be pieces of shit. His mom also held his hand to a hot stove for playing with matches when he was three. So, yeah. Sadly, he witnessed a lot of domestic many, uh, sorry, he witnessed a lot of domestic disputes, often violent um, between his parents who finally separated when he was nine years old, um, at which point he and his mother and siblings went to live with their grandmother. At the age of 11, when the divorce was finalized, the children were given the option of which parent to live with. Um, Richard and his two sisters chose their dad while the two brothers went with the mother, which I think I read in one of the articles that a lot of the abuse was towards the boys. So or like the dad abused the boys a lot or something. So I found it really interesting that the two other brothers went with the dad. So Richard's dad was a longshoreman and was frequently unable or just unwilling to take care of the kids. So they pretty much just passed were passed around by family members, caretakers, or just women he was dating in general. His dad apparently suffered from hallucinations and seemed pretty unstable. Apparently he had taken a gun outside of the house and shot at these hallucinations before, so yeah, very unstable. Um, he also apparently, Richard was apparently beaten by his dad. One time it resulted in his jaw being broken. By the beginning of his teen years, Richard was already involved in criminal activity. He was placed on probation at the age of 12 for burglary and forgery. He also committed burglary again when he was 15 and then dropped out of school the same year. He admitted to a psychiatrist that stealing helped relieve the tension that he felt building inside of him. At the age of 17, Richard went to court for, for a motorcycle theft and was advised by the judge that he could either go to California Youth Authority or he could join the U.S. Army. So he chose the latter and he was discharged after 13 months of service. I'm sure slightly more fucked up than when he entered. On October 12, 1973, Richard went to a party at a home of 18-year-old Marlene Voris. That same night, Marlene was found dead of a gunshot wound, and there were seven suicide notes found at the scene. Police concluded that she had committed suicide, even though all of her friends said that they thought Richard killed her, which who commits suicide at a party at their house? I'm just I'm sure it's happened. I just find it, you know, highly unlikely so Richard told a psychiatrist in 1977 that Marlene's death deeply affected him and that during a later crime, he heard her voice in his head telling him she wanted to be assaulted, raped, and robbed. Richard was arrested a few weeks after Marlene's death when he tried to pawn stolen property. He was sentenced to six months in county jail. Likely about five weeks after his release, he was arrested for another burglary and sentenced to five months to 15 years in jail but was paroled after only one or two years. In 1976, about two months after his early release, 
Richard abducted a woman, Frances Mays, by knife point at a commuter train station, but luckily she was able to escape and flag down a car that happened to be a highway patrol on his way to work. Richard was then arrested by this patrol officer and, while in jail, said he continually heard Frances's voice and was sent to Napa State Hospital for mental evaluation, but he escaped and went on a four-day crime spree where he nearly bludgeoned a nurse, Marjorie Mitchell, again, because these voices that he was hearing said to, stole a shotgun from an animal shelter as well as drugs, and attempted to kidnap a bartender, Hazel Frost, who escaped and almost killed Richard with a gun in her car. So Hazel Frost is a badass. He was finally arrested on December 21st after breaking into the home of Josephine Krieger, and he was sentenced to a maximum of 10 years, serving only six of those years. So let's just recap. He's been burglarizing since he was like 15. He's gets out of jail and immediately goes back in. He was possibly involved with the murder of some random 18-year-old. And then he attempted to kidnap and kill somebody who just happened to escape, escaped a mental institution, bludgeoned a nurse, kidnapped like two other people. I just, for fuck's sake, dude. In 1984, he abducted another woman at gunpoint from her apartment and forced her to withdraw $6,000 from her bank account. And he was sentenced to 16 years, but was paroled early on June 27th, 1993, just months before Polly's murder. So almost two months after her kidnapping on November 28th, the previously mentioned property owner was inspecting her property after loggers had cleared the area of trees when she discovered items that concerned her and she felt they might be from a kidnapping. Um, She called the sheriff's department to report her findings and the deputies and the CSI were dispatched. Found on her property was a torn pair of ballet leggings, which were later matched by the FBI crime lab to the other part of the leggings that were taken into evidence the night of the kidnapping. They also found a sweatshirt with duct tape in the pocket, a, quote, rough rider, end quote, condom wrapper with an unrolled condom nearby, and a knotted piece of white silky cloth that later matched to the cloth that he bound the girls with. Investigators then looked up dispatch calls in that area the night of the kidnapping and found the field investigation that the two or the field interrogation that the two deputies had filed on Richard Davis. Apparently, this is the only reason that Richard was identified. So shout out to those deputies for being like, well, we can't get him even though we know something's fucking wrong. But just in case. So once they had his name, investigators were able to trace the palm print left at the scene to him as they had been unable to match the partial print earlier because it was poor quality, the like the one left at the scene, because obviously his prints are in the system. But also, I don't I don't know. Do they get your palm print or do they just get your fingerprints? I'm not really sure. With that, the Sonoma County Sheriff's Department, Petaluma Police, and the FBI launched a search of the property. Initially, the search was kept low-key because Richard was just under surveillance. Um, they like hadn't actually arrested him, but the initial search did turn up empty, as did the surveillance on Richard. So the decision to arrest him for the kidnapping was made. While being interrogated by the Petaluma Police and the FBI, a much, a much larger search was launched on December 3rd. The Sonoma County Sheriff's Department was assisted by over 500 search members from several different agencies and even different states. 
To this day, it remains one of the largest searches ever conducted in California. The search continued through December 4th and produced other items of evidence, but no human, re- no human remains. That night, Richard confessed to kidnapping and murdering Polly, and he led investigators to her body. He had buried her in a shallow grave just off the highway about a mile south of Cloverdale, California, um, or just south of the Cloverdale, California city limits, which is about 20 to 30 miles from where the search was occurring. Even though Richard admitted to strangling Polly, he refused to give any kind of timeline of events. So investigators initially thought that Richard was concerned that both of the people that passed him that night would call the sheriff's department. So they believed that he killed her before the deputies arrived and then hid her body in like the thick brush near where his car was stuck. He then waited after being escorted back to the highway, um, back to Highway 12 by the deputies, and then he drove back to retrieve her body. Investigators also suspect that Richard had the site picked out before kidnapping since it wasn't anywhere where someone would casually just find her. So after a month and a half long trial, Richard was convicted on June 18, 1996 of first degree murder with four special circumstances, robbery, burglary, kidnapping, and attempted lewd act on a child. The San Jose Superior Court jury returned the verdict of death. At this formal sentencing, Richard provoked national outrage by taunting the victim's family, extending both middle fingers at a courtroom camera, and worse than that, he later said that Polly's last words before he killed her were her implying her father molested her. Get so fucked. It's so disgusting. I, I'm not even going to tell you, like, what he said, she said, because it's just, it's 100% not true. Like, shut 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 the fuck up like literally shut up so vile it's just oh it makes me so fucking mad so judge hastings then formally sentenced richard to death telling him that his conduct in the courtroom made the decision significantly easier at the time of this recording richard allen davis still remains on death row at san quentin so fuck off richard allen davis i hope that you are you know what i'm not going to say it because i want good karma to come my way but Fuck you. So Polly's body was cremated and her ashes were spread over the Pacific Ocean. Her father, Mark, became a child advocate and established the Polly Class Foundation, which was formerly known as Class Kids Foundation, which promotes prevention programs for at-risk youth, stronger sentencing for violent criminals, and governmental accountability and responsibility. So here's an interesting sidebar. Um, On November 11th of 1993, the Poly Class Foundation received nonprofit status and Mark Class made Bill Rhodes president of the organization. However, nine days later, stories and allegations surfaced and forced Rhodes to resign. A woman had filed a civil suit accusing Rhodes of molesting her several times when she was nine years old. Now, police noted that whether these statements were true or false, Rhodes was a convicted sex offender um, because in 1967, he was convicted of masturbating in front of female children um, with a knife, blindfolding them and then forcing them to undress before fondling them. So he was acquitted of those charges, but it's still super creepy how close these are to the abduction of Polly. So Bill Rhodes was cleared by police regarding Polly's abduction because it isn't uncommon for offenders to assist in the investigation of their own crime. Um, But apparently Bill Rhodes had jumped in pretty early 
in on, on this uh, investigation for Polly. So to this, though, he states that he got involved in the search for her in part to make up for his past. But like, mm, I don't know, man. I'm just saying there are other ways that you can make up for your past. I'm, I don't know. I don't know. Um, Mark Class has also made himself available to parents of kidnapped children, which I mentioned in the Amber Alert episode. The California Highway Patrol changed their radio practice after this case, upgrading so that the APB are broadcast on all police channels through a centralized 911 dispatch system, which, again, is something that you think of and you're just like, yeah, no shit. Like, why wouldn't it be like that? But it wasn't, you know. So this changed that. And then California politicians, as well as other state politicians, supported the three strikes law, which is also known as the habitual offender law, which requires a person who is convicted of an offense and who has one or two other previous serious convictions serve a mandatory life sentence in prison with or without parole. The California three strikes law was signed into law on March 8th, 1994. However, it was modified because it unfairly targeted groups of color and incarcerated people for non-serious and or non-violent crimes. Actually, Polly, Polly's sisters, Jess and Annie, have recently become very vocal opponents of the three strikes law and launched a podcast called A New Legacy, which focuses on finding alternatives to mass, incarcer- mass incarceration and tough on crime initiatives, which I think is really cool. In October 1998, a performing arts center was named after Polly, but it did close in 2000 due to building safety and lack of funding, but it reopened in 2022 after years of fundraising and improvements. Mark Class acknowledges the legacy of his daughter and her tragic end made, but still nothing can fill that void. He states, quote, I think her legacy is strong. I do, but still I'd trade it all for a hug, end quote. And that is the horrible abduction and murder of Polly class I really hope I I hate saying like I hope you enjoyed that one because it's so horrible but I hope that you found it interesting and learned something that I think that's what I like most about researching these is like I've heard these on a lot of other podcasts but nobody's gonna research the way that you want necessarily like some people go way too in depth and some people don't go enough in depth. And I am happy when I learn certain things are in place. Like I didn't, I never, I didn't know that there was a three strikes law. Um, I didn't know that Amber Alerts hadn't been around for forever. I didn't know that like people didn't know where um, sex offenders lived, which is Megan Kanka, who I can, I will cover um, eventually as well. So it's just really cool to see these tragedies and then learn that something positive-ish came out of it. So I think that's what I enjoy about this the most is not only sharing this information, but learning the aftermath from it. Because I, I know these stories. I know like the basics basis of a lot of these, but I don't know. Nobody talks about the after. They only talk about the horrible you know current like what's what happened they don't talk about what these things initiated and the people that were involved in what they're doing today still for it so I think that's kind of the coolest part of this and then also letting you guys know because I have had some people that listen to that listen to this podcast say like oh my god I I literally never knew that and I never and I was like I know it's so cool and I really love when you guys do that 
so yeah, that um, that's all I have today. Um, next week, if all goes according to plan, I will have a two-parter, I'm hoping. I have to do a little bit more, but I am attempting to do a two-parter, um, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. One, in case it doesn't work out, but two, just because I like surprising you. But yeah, as always, um, if you have any true crime cases, weird medical cases, or just weird shit in general that you want to share with me, that you want me to look into, or that have happened to you, you've experienced, whatever, then send them to that's insane podcast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram at that's insane underscore pod, and I'm also on Facebook at that's insane podcast. As always, I do not have a TikTok for this, but you can always follow Aurelia May Makeup on TikTok if you want to watch me do my makeup while I tell these stories, or if you just want to give me a follow to show some support. Definitely subscribe, rate, and review. That's how this podcast is shared, so other people can get on get in on it. Don't be selfish. Don't be stingy. Let other people know about the podcast. And yeah, like I said last week, I hope that you guys, you know, I hope you're being safe and being smart and being sane. Until next time. Bye.